Section 16 of Just 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire. Just 16 by Susan Coolidge. The Sorrows of Felicia. It was a pretty chamber, full of evidences of taste and loving care. White curtains draped the windows and the looking-glass. There was a nice writing-table, set where the light fell upon it exactly as it should for convenience to the writer. There was a bookshelf full of gaily bound books, a pretty blue carpet, photographs on the faintly tinted blue wall. Somebody had evidently taken pains to make the room charming, and just as evidently to make it charming for the use of a girl. And there lay the girl on the sofa, Felicia, or in schoolroom parlance, Felie Bliss. Was she basking in the comfort and tastefulness of her room? Not at all. A volume of In Memoriam was in her hand. Her face was profoundly long and dismal. She murmured mournful lines over to herself, only pausing now and then to reach out her hand and fill a tumbler from a big jug of lemonade, which stood on a little table beside her. Philippe always provided herself with lemonade when she retired to her bedroom to enjoy the pleasures of woe for a season. From the door which was locked sounded a chorus of knocks and irreverent voices. "'Sister, are you in there?' demanded one. "'Are you thinking about life, sister?' asked another. "'Have you got your sharp-pointed scissors with you?' cried the first voice. "'Oh, Philly, Philly, stay your rash hand!' "'We like lemonade just as much as you,' chimed in Dimple, the youngest of the four. "'Let us in. We are very thirsty, and we long to comfort you.' said voice the second with a stifled giggle felicia paid no attention whatever to these observations only murmured to herself but what to her shall be the end and what to me remains of good to her perpetual maidenhood who is her demanded that bad jenny through the door if you mean mrs carrington you are all wrong may curtis says her engagement is announced to mr collins oh children do go away cried Philly in a despairing tone. Forgive these wild and wandering cries, confessions of a wasted youth. Forgive them where they fail in truth, and in thy wisdom make me wise. Hear her, said Betty outside. She's having it very badly today. I wish I knew Tennyson. I should like to tell him what I think of his writing a horrid melancholy caterwauling book, and making the Bliss family miserable. Philly. If you've drunk up all your lemonade, you might at least lend us the picture. It was no use. Felicia either did not or would not hear. So with a last thump on the panels of the long-suffering door, the trio departed in search of another picture. If anybody had told Philly Bliss, at seventeen, that she really had not a grief in the world worthy of the name, she would have resented it deeply. She was a tall girl whose bones and frame were meant for the use of a large woman, when their owner should have arrived at all their nature meant her to be, but who, at this period in her life, was almost startlingly long and thin. She had outgrown her strength, as people say, which was Philly's only excuse for the almost tragic enjoyment which she took in mournful things. She was in fair health and had an excellent appetite, and a real schoolgirl love for raisins, stick cinnamon, sugar-plums and soda-water, tastes which were highly at variance with the role which she wished to play, that of a sweetly resigned and long-suffering being 
whose hopes had faded from earth, into the distant heaven toward which she was hastening. Felie's sweet tooth was quite a trial to her, but she struggled with it and resisted enjoyment as far as possible with her naturally cheerful disposition. She was an interesting perplexity to her family, who were contented, reasonable folk, of the sort which happily for the world is called commonplace. To her younger sisters, especially, Felicia was a never-failing and exciting conundrum, the answer to which they were always guessing, but never could find out. For days together she would be as cheerful as possible, full of fun and contrivance, and the life of the house. Then, all of a sudden, gloom would envelop her like a soft fog, and she would retire to her room with In Memoriam, or some other introspective volume, and a fat jug of lemonade, lock the door, and just drink and weep for hours together, as her sister Jenny expressed it. It was really unaccountable. All her books were deeply scored with lines against the woeful passages and such penciled remarks as, alas, and all too true. She sat in church with a carefully arranged sad smile on her face, but this, as unsuitable to her natural expression, was not always a success. Felie was much aggrieved one day at being told by an indiscriminating friend that her face seemed made to laugh. No one could imagine it anything but bright. This, for a girl who was posing for patience on a monument smiling at grief, was rather a trial, but then the friend had never seen her reading King John and murmuring, Here I and sorrow sit, with a long brown stick of cinnamon in process of crunch, occupying the other corner of her mouth but perhaps the friend might have found even this funny. There are such unfeeling people in the world. Felie's letters were rather dull reading, because she told so little of what she had said or done, and hinted so liberally at her own aching heart and thwarted hopes. But her correspondents, who were mostly jolly schoolgirls, knew her pretty well and dismissed these jeremiads as just Felie's way. She does love to be miserable, you know but nobody is better fun than she when she doesn't think it her duty to be unhappy. Felie didn't come down to tea on the evening of the day on which our story opens. An afternoon of lemonade had dampened her appetite, but at bedtime she stole out in her dressing-gown and slippers, helped herself to a handful of freshly baked cookies and a large green cucumber pickle, and by the aid of these refreshments contrived to stave off the pangs of hunger till next morning when she appeared at breakfast cheerful and smiling, with no sign upon her spirits of the eclipse of the day before. Her family made no allusion to that melancholy episode. They were used to such. Only Mr. Bliss asked, between two mouthfuls of toast, "'Where were you getting to last night, child? I didn't hear you come home.' "'I was not out. I didn't feel very, very bright, and went to bed early.' "'Oh!' Mr. Bliss understood. He who makes truth unlovely commits high treason against virtue, says an old writer, but he who simulates grief and makes it ridiculous commits an almost equal crime against true feeling. Felie had been playing at sorrow where no sorrow was. That very day a real sorrow came, and she woke up to find her world all changed into a reality of pain and puzzle and bewilderment which was very different from the fictitious loss and the sham suffering which she had found so much to her mind. She had no idea, as she watched her father and mother drive off that afternoon, that anything terrible was about to happen. Only the seers of the Scotch legends 
could see the shroud drawn up over the breast of those who are appointed to die suddenly. The rest of us see nothing. The horse which Mr. Bliss drove was badly broken, but he had often gone out before and come back safely. It was only on this particular day that the combination of circumstances occurred which made the risky horse dangerous. The shriek of the railroad whistle, the sharp turn in the road, the heap of stones. It was a runaway, an overset, and two hours from the time when the youthful sisters, unexpected of misfortune, had watched their parents off, they were brought back. Mr. Bliss dead, Mrs. Bliss with a broken arm and injuries to the spine so severe that there was little chance of her ever being able to leave her bed again. So much can be done in one fatal moment. It is at such dark, dark times that real character shows itself. Felice little affectations, her morbid musings and fancies, fell from her like some light fantastic drapery which is shriveled in sudden heat. Her real self, hopeful, self-reliant, optimistic, rose into action as soon as the first paralyzing shock of pain was past, and she had taken in the reality of this new and strange thing. All the cares of the house, the management of affairs, the daily wear and tear of life, which has to be borne by someone, fell upon her inexperienced hands. Her mother was too shaken and ill to be consulted. The younger girls instinctively leaned on what they felt to be a strength superior to their own. It was a heavy load for young shoulders, and Philippe was not yet eighteen. She made mistakes, of course, mistakes repented of with bitter crying and urgent resolutions. She was often tired, often discouraged. Things did not smooth themselves easily, or the world go much out of its usual course, because Philippe Bliss was perplexed and in trouble. There were no mornings to spare for tragedy or Tennyson. Philippe's eyeballs often longed for the relief of a good fit of tears. That troublesome little lump would come into her throat, which is the price of tears resolutely held back. But there was too much to do to allow of such a weakening self-indulgence. Mother must be cared for, the house must be looked after, people on business must be seen. The children, as she called her sisters, must not be suffered to be too sad, and then again, in memoriam, beautiful as it is, and full of sweet and true and tender feeling, did not satisfy Philippe now as it had done when she was forced to cultivate an artificial emotion outside of herself. If I had time and knew how to write poetry, I could say a great many things that Tennyson never thought of, she told Jenny one day. It is so with all who suffer. No poet ever voiced the full and complete expression of our own personal pain. There is always something beyond, an individual pang recognized and understood only by ourselves. So the years went on, as years do, even when their wheels seem weighted with lead. The first sharpness of their loss abated. They became used to the sight of their father's empty chair, of his closed desk. They ceased to listen for the sound of his step on the porch his key in the door. Mrs. Bliss gradually regained a more comfortable measure of health, but she remained an invalid, the chief variation in her life being when she was lifted from bed to sofa and back again from sofa to bed. Philly was twenty-four, and the younger ones were no longer children, though she still called them so. Even Dimple wore long dresses, and had set up something very like a lover though Philippe sternly refused to have him called so till Dimple was older. 
Philly was equally severe with Dr. Ernest Allen on her own account. She was a great deal too busy to think of such a thing, she declared, but Dr. Allen, who had faith in time, simply declared that he didn't mind waiting, and continued to hang his hat on the hat-tree in the Bliss's entry three times a week. Indeed, looking at Felicia Bliss, now that she had rounded physically and mentally into what she was meant to become, you would not wonder that any man should be willing to wait a while in hope of winning such a prize. A certain bright cheer and helpfulness was her charm. The room grew pleasanter as soon as she came into it, Dimple declared. Certainly Dr. Allen thought so, and as a man may willingly put off building a house till he can afford to have one, which fronts the sun, so he considered it worth while to delay for a few years, even, if need be, and secure for life a daily shining which should make all life pleasanter. He had never known Felie in her morbid days, and she could never make him quite believe her when she tried to tell of that past phase of her girlhood. It is simply impossible. You must exaggerate, if you have not dreamt it, he said. Not a bit. Ask Dimple. Ask any of them. I prefer to ask my own eyes, my own convictions, declared the lover. You are the most wholesome woman, through and through, that I ever knew. A doctor argues from present indications to past conditions. I am sure you are mistaken about yourself. If I can detect with a stethoscope the spot in your lungs where five years back the pneumonia left a trace, surely I ought to be able to make out a similar spot in your nervous temperament. The idea is opposed to all that you are, but not to all that I was. Really and truly, Dr. Allen, I used to be the most absurd girl in the world, if you could have seen me. But what cured you in this radical and surprising manner? Well, said Philly demurely, I suppose the remedy was what you would call homeopathic. I had reveled in a sort of imaginary sorrowfulness, but when that dreadful time came and I tasted real sorrow, I found that it took all my strength to meet it, and I was glad enough of everything bright and cheering that I could get at to help me through. I wonder if there are many girls in the world who are nursing imaginary miseries as I used to do, she went on. If there are, I should like to tell them how foolish it is, and how bad for them. But dear me, there are so many girls, and one can't get at them. I suppose each must learn the lessons for herself and fight her fight out somehow. And I hope they will all get through safely and learn, as I have, that happiness is the most precious thing in the world and that it is so, so foolish not to enjoy and make the most of it while we have it, because, you know, some day trouble must come to everybody, and it is such a pity to have to look back and know that you have wasted a chance. End of section 16 Recording by Claire